This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This week, we're taking a look at the American image. First, how does a post-industrial town bounce back from devastating decline? And why is the American brand vital for the future? This is your fast break. After the steel mills closed and half the population left, life in Youngstown, Ohio became very bleak. Now its younger generations are realizing new ways to build back this part of the Rust Belt. Joining me today are filmmaker Carla Murthy and Radio Lab host and creator Jad Abumrad. Together, they produced The Place That Makes Us, a new documentary that follows those people striving for a better life. Welcome to the show, Jad and Carla. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I guess a good place to start would be what initially drew you to this new project? So I, you know, my day job is usually to report for various news magazines on PBS. And I was sent to do a story back in 2016 to Youngstown, Ohio, to kind of take a look at the revitalization efforts going on there. It was an election year and to kind of take the temperature of this post-industrial town during an election year. And that's when I met many of the characters who ended up being in the film. And I had all these ideas of what these towns were supposed to be like, what post-industrial towns look like. And a lot of those perceptions were frankly wrong. (laughs) There was also just a lot of people, local residents, young residents who were choosing to stay and rebuild the town. And that was kind of different than the trend I had been seeing in other places where, you know, everyone leaves and goes to the coast or goes wherever else there's opportunity. And that energy from those people who were staying was really remaking the town. And I and I wanted to see more of what that looked like, what change really looks like over time. And that's kind of what initially drew me to want to go back and start developing this into um, a longer film. Yeah, I'll also add just remembering back to that time, which seems like ions ago. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, Carla does sort of like, this is sort of a disparaging term, but it's not meant disparagingly, uh, like parachute journalism. You know, same with me in that, very often you go to a place and you have just like a day or two to figure out your story. And so you mm-hmm. drop in, you find your interviews, and then you come back. And correct me if I'm wrong, I felt like part of the appeal was that this was a chance to just stand in a place and watch and not parachute in, but just be there. Mm. And when you stay and you don't swoop in and swoop out, the world immediately seems different and you see things you don't see. And so I think part of it was about sort of like slowing down time so that you could actually see the true rhythms of a place and see the way that the place is changing right well because you were there for a long time you 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 filmed the documentary over the course of three years how did you go about tackling that particular style of production well it's completely different from anything i've ever done just as jad said i mean usually i go into a story and i know what i'm gonna get i've pre-interviewed everyone and you know i kind of have an idea And this was sort of just much more open-ended and frankly scary because I didn't know what the ending was going to be or when to stop filming. The only kind of constraint I gave myself, you know, and this actually came from that first initial reporting trip, which was that they were taking us to different houses. You know, we follow in the documentary this nonprofit, and one of their main goals is to rehab vacant, blighted houses throughout the city. And so they had taken me to various, you know, houses at different stages. And I thought, oh, that would be really cool to kind of look at one house over time. 
and watch it become a home because you know when you first go to these houses it's really heartbreaking because they're just filled with all of these remnants of someone's life Mm -hmm. and the pain that someone actually had to leave this house behind and to me those houses are very symbolic of a lot of these towns you know post-industrial towns and what they're going through so you know the constraint was that i wanted to follow one house over time and have that be kind of a backbone for a film and we ended up following a few different houses, and but one became sort of the central character. So I knew we had that arc. And then it was just kind of, I don't know, it's like we just kept filming <laughs> and meeting more people. <laughs> it was very organic, you know, just how we met people, and we just kept going. <laughs> it's like, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's really interesting because, I mean, making a documentary is hard, man. It's like, it's like <laughs> because as she was saying, like so often people in our positions, we know what we're going to get before we get there. And then yeah. you, you go to a place and it, it's funny, you realize that the world doesn't exist in story shapes. It mm. exists in a splatter of people living their lives in this messy way. And if you say to yourself, I want to be truthful to that, it's sometimes really hard to get back to the story shape. And so there were years where Carla was just taking trips out to Youngstown, her and Alexandra, her producer. They would just mm-hmm. go out to Youngstown and shoot a scene, come back, shoot a scene, come back, shoot a scene, come back, and not know what where the story was. And so I would be the guy who'd be like, well, maybe this is, maybe you could focus here, focus there. But, you know, it's like, it's really hard when you commit yourself to a particular style of documentary to then figure out the borders. Right. You know, y- you talk about kind of zooming in on, a particular house or, or few houses. But but how does the story then also relate to the broader political landscape? Well, you know, Youngstown, like a lot of places, and this is what's told to me there as well, they often get used by politicians. And this has been happening for decades. And it's Republicans and Democrats. They will mm-hmm. come to these towns, especially during, you know, around election season and use you know, the abandoned steel mill as their backdrop to kind of espouse whatever political beliefs they have and their promises and their view of the American dream. And then they leave. And I really wanted this documentary to look at, okay, what happens after they leave, despite whatever promises are made and are often broken? What are people doing on the ground for themselves? And so, you know, in the film, we only have really one moment where we sort of pull back and remind people, like, this is the context of these places. Like, you see a little bit of Trump in there. And it's just to remind people but that, like, there is this kind of tension between what's happening, you know, in the national political frenzy and then what's really happening on the ground. And I really wanted to show that, shed light on that and validate those efforts. Watching the film at the very end, because there was a long period where Carla deliberately didn't show me the film, and watching it at the end, it was really inter- it was kind of revelatory because it felt like it was so many pieces that we're telling also on at Radio Lab are asking the same question of like how do you make change in the world? Like what does what does change feel like? Does it feel like a cataclysmic break, or does it feel like slow, tiny, incremental changes? And that's sort of the conversation we're having politically, which is, you know, certainly on the left, which is what kind of change is too little, what kind of change is too much, right? And so it was really interesting to watch the documentary because it speaks to, I think, the tempo of change as it actually happens in a place. Youngstown is a place where you have this new generation that's trying to grow up in the in the shadow of these older boom towns. And so it's a place that you feel its story has been told. 
and these people are trying to tell a new story. But to do that is such slow, measured, incremental progress. And it's like to see one house get renovated, it feels like this huge tectonic shift. Like, oh, somebody actually made change in this place. And yeah. so there's something for me about time and tempo and about expectations that really sort of like is powerful in this film. Like it's sort of yeah. subterranean, but that's, that's what I sort of see in it. Well, let's talk a little bit about location. So the film is set in Ohio, obviously, where you two originally met uh, at Oberlin College. Was it all the more emotional a project because it took you back to Ohio? Hmm, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. For me personally, I have been sent to Ohio so many times for my job. <laughs> I mean, I Ohio bet. is just one of those states, right, where yeah. every issue facing the, the, America, like you can tell that story in Ohio. Sure. Um, so I've done, you know, all kinds of stories. But, you know, I do have all these memories of driving past Youngstown from college yeah, wow. down Route 80. That. That's so and, true. And never want, never stopping. I mean, I think one time I did get into a car accident in college and we had to stay the night. That was pre-Jad, <laughs> who was my <laughs> previous boyfriend. <laughs> and it was scary. I mean, like my impression of Youngstown in college was just this scary place. <laughs> yeah, so I just never thought we would we would go back. It was that place that you kind of drove past on Route 80 and didn't wow. stop. So, yeah, not necessarily like warm, fuzzy feelings to <laughs> go back yeah. to Youngstown, yeah. but... Definitely like revelatory. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I so I'm the person that gives the abstract answer. So I'm going to give the abstract <laughs> answer, which sure. is so both Carl and I are sort of the product of first generation immigrants, right? They come, came to this country. My family's Lebanese, came to Nashville. Her family is uh, half Indian, half Filipina, came to Houston or came, I guess Seattle first and then Houston. Houston so, first, actually. Houston first? Then Seattle, then okay, to Houston. So. <laughs> so we're both very interested in the concept of, like, what does it mean to belong in a place? Because I think we both grew up feeling a little bit on the outside of the dominant thing that yeah. was happening in both of these places. But also growing up with this, with this sense that the story that sometimes gets told about your home, not only does it not include you, but it, it isn't true, right? There's just a sense that the story that's told about the South isn't the real story, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of my work recently has sort of centered around the same issue of like, what does it mean to belong in a place? Not just to like feel like you have a home, but to feel like the story of that place includes you, yeah. right? So yeah, so it, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Ohio because that is where we met when we were in this kind of itinerant college phase. And then we both came here. And I feel like recently both of our work has really asked these like deep questions about being from a place and what does that mean because of we are inherited that sense of restlessness from our families you know yeah, definitely yeah. I mean, that's definitely what drew me also to wanting to tell the story in Youngstown because a lot of the people that are in the film I mean they, they go back generations their family like fourth generation industrial worker in that specific region and I like I don't have that same yeah. connection at all I mean like my dad was a homeless kid in India then was brought over as a foster child and you know, like you said, my mom was came over to be a nurse, and you know if the going gets rough, you just keep moving and yeah. going to the next place. <laughs> and so sure. I don't know if it's like in our DNA, but I just was really drawn to that to see what the, what does that look like and what does that feel like to be have be so connected to a place. Yeah, it's yeah. like the aliens, you know, like people who have who can go back four generations from one place. I'm just like, wow, that is just an alien species to me. To us, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So. Uh, what was it like collaborating with your spouse on a creative project like this? Uh, you know, a question for both of you, I guess. 
You know, it's funny because I often think about our first collaboration, which was when we had to build a wall together. This is many, many years ago. And I'll never forget, like, I had to give him, like, the tape measure. Do you remember this? And then I accidentally, like, poked you in the face. And the look you gave me, just like, I'm going to kill you. Like, just, you know, all of those things of, like, building walls, putting Ikea furniture together. Yeah. We've moved. Raising children. We've worked through it. But this was a very unique in, in terms of just finding, figuring out what our roles were going to be. Mm. You know, Chad mentioned earlier that early on, I was showing him a lot, like all the footage that we got when we came back from these trips and showing him all these different scenes and recutting things. And my little office is literally right outside his door. I'd be like, Chad, come look at this. Mm. <laughs> um, at some point I had to be like, okay, I can't show you anything else because I really needed him to be sort of the bird's eye view for me and to just see it as the whole where I could be in the weeds of it and be figuring out like every single little nuance and I needed him to be the person who's going to sit in the audience and and watch it um, and Mm -hmm. see it fresh. They're so important when you're making these kinds of films over a long period of time is to find those people who know your vision but can also just kind of see the the bird's eye view of the film and give you feedback. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, like, there's been, a, we've informally collaborated yeah. a million times, you know, c- uh, when she's m- working on a story and she's thinking about structure, we'll sit at our kitchen table and we have sort of a chalkboard wall and we'll draw story shapes and, like, help each other. And she's solved a million Radiolab story structure problems for me. So mm-hmm. we, we've always had that conversation as part of our, our life together. This was different. One of the other side conversations we always have is that she'll say, oh, you radio people love to talk so much. And I'll say, well, you video people, like you just like have scenes and you never like tell me what the hell's going on. And like we have these like, like you radio people, you video people kind of back and right. forth, sort of in, in jest. But it was really interesting to me to see the end result, which was this like beautiful, spacious film. There's so much can be accomplished without any words. It was really quite extraordinary because, you know, my medium, even though we try to be as experimental as possible, you know, it often means you have to explain the hell out of something. Yeah. And it was really liberating to see her inhabit just the images. And there are places where there were sort of like connections happening between characters and between edits. And I don't know, it was really cool. It was really cool. to So there was part of it for me was just about learning this new vocabulary vicariously through her. Yeah, which I also had to learn as well, because I do, you know, normally I do news pieces where I'm also just writing the hell out of something and giving all this context and background and statistics. And this is a completely different process where I didn't I chose to pull almost all of that stuff out and just let the work and the scenes and the people just kind of inhabit and also just build in all of these very quiet moments in the film. So you do feel like you've been to this place and you know what it sounds like. You know what the streets sound like. Yeah, yeah. So you've come a long way from building walls together. (laughs) Building walls to building bridges. There you go. So the film was was featured at a couple of film festivals uh, last month. What's it been like to roll out a film during a pandemic? Uh, I mean, as you said, it took three years and then editing. And it was so heartbreaking in the beginning to know that 
we wouldn't be able to go in person to some of these festivals and be in a theater with the audience mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, hear the reactions. Like I just, it was so hard in the beginning. <laughs> and then, you know, as we started getting into these virtual festivals, you start to realize anyone can see your film now all over the country. I mean, I, I really, we really had to like completely shift the way we think about how that whole trajectory is kind of all up in the air now. So right. that's been really interesting to navigate. Before you would go to a festival and it would be geared towards the people in that town and maybe some industry people. And now you can market your film to anyone all over the country. Yeah. So that's it's been challenging. Yeah, um, it's, I mean, it's it's honestly a bummer that because like when when you when you're doing that, you imagine this end point where you're sitting in a dark room with a bunch of people and you're watching these characters that you've been observing for years, and they're like 30 feet tall on the screen, and that's kind of the image you have in your mind. Yeah, and to not have that is a is a bummer. But we're also, I mean, Carla's been thinking about road tripping a little bit in the middle of next year to do a sort of a tour where we you know, do drive-ins or something. Huh. Just to maybe try to give that sense of, because, you know, the, the, the one of the wonderful things about film is that you, especially documentary film, is like, these are humans. These are people. They're yeah. flawed and small and fragile people. But then you get to see them as these epic Shakespearean protagonists on the screen. And I feel like that transformation is such a cool thing about film. It just made everyone seem so big and so yeah. amazing. And so I feel like we should we need to have that moment yeah, at some point. Yeah, it's like point. the collective experience of watching a film. I mean, it's, I don't know, that's, it's like an amazing thing to be able to go to the movies. Um, totally. So hopefully one day we'll be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's making me miss uh, going, to the, going to the movies as well. Well, it's it's been a pleasure having you both on. Um, just uh, for our listeners, w where can people watch the film? Um, it will be still in a few film festivals this year, um, which um, I post them on my website. And then next year, it is slated to be broadcast on PBS. What's the website? The website is the name of the film, which is theplacethatmakesus.com. Awesome. It's been lovely hearing about the film and speaking to you both, Carla and Jad. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, really. Thank you. This episode of World Changing Ideas is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. If you asked 100 Americans to define what the American brand is, you'd probably get a range of answers. So to explore this more, Fast Company created a series called USA Can This Brand Be Saved? We wanted to approach the question from a variety of angles and perspectives to get an in-depth look at what America's brand is and how it's changed over the past four years and where it needs to go from here. As part of the series, Fast Company associate editor Yasmin Gagne talked with Reginald Dwayne Betts about his view of the American brand. Welcome to the show, Yasmin. Uh, thanks for having me. Can you give us a little background on who Reginald Dwayne Betts is? Yeah, so Reginald Dwayne Betts is a poet, he's a lawyer, and a multidisciplinary artist. And a lot of his work is inspired by his own traumatic experiences. So when he was 16... He was convicted of carjacking and imprisoned for more than eight years, some of that in solitary confinement. Wow. But after his release in 2005, he earned a BA and an MFA and eventually even a JD from Yale Law School. And he's been practicing for a time as a public defender. So he's written a memoir about it called The Question of Freedom about his experiences, as well as three volumes of poetry, including Selen, which explores the injustices that are 
kind of baked into the U.S. legal system. So what's his idea of the American brand and, and how does it relate to the prevailing definition of it? So I was kind of surprised by his response. He said he had one person and it was Frederick Douglass. Um, you know, he talked about the fact that we create heroes or people who are supposed to represent not who we are, but who we want to be. And Frederick Douglass to him says something about all the things that we as a country, as a brand, aspire to be. So Douglas apparently was the most photographed person of his generation. That's actually not because he was vain or wanted to be famous necessarily. It's because he had an understanding that it was important to create an image of what an educated Black person in America was during that time period. And I would also say Frederick Douglass because he believed in something. Every country in this world, I think the people in those countries, we all want to believe that our lives have, have meaning beyond our individual prosperity. And Douglas, and coming up from slavery through the might of his arm and the strength of his intelligence and the will of his perseverance, I think is emblematic of you know what this country has had to do because this country has had to constantly grapple with its failures, with its inadequacies, and also you know with its brilliance. And I think Douglas had to do the same thing. And, and sort of committing himself and committing his life and focusing on his struggle in a way that he could have chose not to. I mean, he could have just been mm-hmm. like, I'm going I'm to go to New York and I'm going to chill and I'm going to live my life. <laughs> so I would say I would say Frederick Douglass. I also wanted to hear what he thought about the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, kind of considering them as brand documents. The Constitution is cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the thing is, like, the Constitution is complicated because, like, the Declaration of Independence and the sort of Bill of Rights is just articulating these things, you know, these rights, these uh, sort of inalienable rights that you, you can, like, list. Whereas Constitution is, is more complicated because it does some of that, but it also um, has these moments where it's like three-fifths of a human being, and, and you got to X that out, but it still is. You know, it, it has these moments where it's just trying to grapple with the practicalities, you know, of being a country. And part of the beauty of it is that it, it, it's been able to last so long despite how um, baked with contradictions and, and, and inconsistencies, some would argue it is. And then, in fact, it has been. You know, I mean, you got prohibition, and then they're like, wait a minute, maybe you don't want to do prohibition. You know, women can't vote. It's like, maybe women should vote. Slavery's all good. Well, no, maybe we should abolish that thing. I mean, I would argue that the Constitution is this kind of living, breathing document that allows us to correct ourselves, and the the Declaration is sort of like a foundational principle statement that that you hope you got right the first time. You know, and, and when you're trying to think about how to put that thing into practice, that's where we make mistakes. What are Bet's thoughts on viewing the American brand from an international perspective? It's funny. He sort of immediately said the problem is most of us haven't been elsewhere, haven't been outside of the country. And thinking about the American brand outside of the country requires this kind of sustained existence outside of it. You know, you have to like live outside of America to think of it that way. Um, and he compared it to being in prison. I remember something he said to me was, the truth is in prison, we don't think about democracy. And he said, I don't have an answer to your question because I haven't lived outside of this country. He said it's difficult to understand and that we maybe haven't understood the kind of responsibility that we carry, you know, especially considering our stance on immigration or the way we talk about other countries. You know, another thing he said that would be interesting to consider is the fact that we maybe aren't the center of things to the degree that we think we are. Wow. When it comes to the idea of American individualism, how does Bet see it as part of the overall brand? He made an interesting distinction. He kind of said that individualism isn't that important to Americans, but the idea is really important to the American brand. 
And maybe that's something we need to address. Something he brought up is the fact that a lot of successful people know how much of their success baked in with kind of support from others. You know, you need others to get where you are. But that's something that's kind of difficult to communicate publicly. So oftentimes these narratives kind of end up being more about one person overcoming all the odds. Hmm. But he did have some thoughts on American exceptionalism as it relates to the recent presidential election. I am more so interested in, in thinking about like what makes Georgia possible. And, and forget what makes Georgia possible in terms of it going blue. But to think about what makes what makes the possibility of that possible. The decade of work that citizens did to make that happen. And, and, and the decade of work that they did to make it happen, understanding that they might fail. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in talking about that. I'm interested in talking about and thinking about what it means to make Barack Obama possible or, or Vice President-elect Kamala Harris possible. You know, you think about a person who served as a prosecutor who um, just, you know, served as a district attorney, attorney general. A lot of people get locked up in this country and you want to blame somebody. And I thought about what I've seen her say publicly and I thought about my mom's own experiences and how it's just like really, really complicated all of it is. And how trying to turn a corner in this country and get to the point where you recognize that Harris has been the first since 2020, and we're still experiencing first, first mm-hmm. black woman to be vice president, first South Indian woman to be vice president, first person in an interracial marriage to be vice president. Profound when you think about it, when you think about what progress looks like, but also when you think about what progress looks like in the face of what individual failures also look like. I think the possibility of a country that allows somebody to um, come up short multiple times and then say the most profound thing I've ever heard in a debate. Joe Biden, when, when current President Trump attacked his son, and he talked about his son's struggles with drug addiction. And I mean, it was like one of the most deeply moving things I ever heard somebody say off script and mm-hmm. on camera. I mean, at least you want to believe, right, that in that moment you want to be like that was America talking. Because the truth is like that sounded like my uncle talking. You know, that sounded like somebody's cousin talking. That sounded like the person that you hear on a, on a primetime drama was just trying to hit that note. And I wouldn't name that American exceptionalism. I would just name that something like, I would just name that America beautiful. You want it to exist as representative. Even if you know it ain't, you just want to be able to name that thing as representative. How does he stay so optimistic about the American brand? I was so surprised by his optimism at this time. And I love this answer. He said that he owed his children optimism and that no matter what happened in the election, this was recorded before election results came out, that he would sort of hold himself accountable to be optimistic. And he sort of pointed out, like, his life has been pretty hard. He's He's been in prison. He's overcome a lot. But it's also been pretty good. The way he thinks about it is he always says, it could have been far worse. It's always work to do, though. I, I feel like that. I feel like it's always work to do. And I feel like if we commit ourselves to the work that needs to be done, then it's a distraction from the, from the pressure and the stress. Because it's not as if the stress isn't there or won't be there. It's just that it's like, how do you commit to work while grappling with that? Be sure to check out the rest of the interview on our site. Thanks for coming on the show, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Fast Break was produced by Avery Miles. Thanks for joining us. I'm Talib Vizra.